Ebb and flow inspires persistence and determination during the rhythmical patterns of decline and regrowth in life. Each episode, I bring on an inspiring and influential voices who are here to help us stand strong and walk through the ebb moments of life and propel us to the peak of our health, physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, so we can live our life in the flow, individually and collectively. This includes strategies, habits, routines, focus tricks, questions, and much more that we can use to live our life in the best way in order to maximize our service to others. Thanks for joining me today. I hope you're as excited for the Ebb and Flow podcast as I am, but to make sure you don't miss any episodes, subscribe now on any stream, check out YouTube, or visit SolomonEzra.com to learn more. So I can keep these episodes a little bit shorter and we can get straight to the guest. The introduction, explanation, and opening to health coaching will be on an episode of their own. If you're curious about them, check out the short episode, The Purpose of Ebb and Flow, where I clarify what it means and so you can discern why any guest or topic on the show has something to share for us to live in our state of flow. Similar to many of my previous guests, where their book had made its way into my awareness and had a profound influence on my perspectives of life, so too did Toward a Meaningful Life by Rabbi Simon Jacobson. I think I first read it during the latter years of college, a time when I was seeking more about my own faith and faith in general. Although the book is by a rabbi and with the wisdom of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, a great leader, it is a great read for anyone of any background seeking meaning and purpose in their own life. Rabbi Simon Jacobson is a pioneering speaker and educator and a mentor to thousands. He's the dean and founder of the Meaningful Life Center, coined the Spiritual Starbucks by the New York Times, which bridges the secular and the spiritual. He's the author of the best-selling book, Toward a Meaningful Life, which has sold over 300,000 copies and has been translated into 13 different languages. With his keen insight into the human condition and over 35 years of experience, including working directly with the Rebbe, he has unique ability to offer clarity and direction, especially in difficult times. To check out more about the Meaningful Life Center and about Rabbi Jacobson, you can go to MeaningfulLife.com. And if you would like to get any book from their shop, my listeners can use the coupon code MYJOURNEY capital M and capital J, one word, for 15% off toward a meaningful life. Now let's jump into our conversation with Rabbi Simon Jacobson. I'm here today with Rabbi Simon Jacobson, the author of Toward a Meaningful Life and wonderful app that you guys have for counting the Omer that hopefully towards the end we can get to. But I wanted to start, uh, I'd love to hear a little bit about yourself and how, and your per, own personal story with the Rebbe and how it really lit a fire on you to, to spread his message and write this book and all that you've been continuously doing. Well, we're going back many years now to my teenage years. You know, those teenage years, you remember yours? It, I'm, I'm only 24, so not long ago. <laughs> so those teenage years were your formative years and you're looking, you're seeking trying to find who you are. And I, uh, I guess, was what you can call a rebel without a cause. I had a lot of energy in me. And uh, I, wanted to, I was ideological. I, had, I wanted to do something with my life. 
And I was looking and I saw a lot, unfortunately, I saw a lot of mediocrity and lack of passion and lack of uh, vision and energy in life. Uh, make, a long story, make a long story short, I um, began being very intrigued by the mystical teachings of Judaism, Kabbalistic and Hasidic teachings. It spoke to my soul. Though I'd grown up in yeshiva and I went through all the Talmudic classes, but Talmud was very technical, mm -hmm. very mechanical, very brilliant, but it was not, it didn't touch my soul, to be honest. But the Hasidic teachings started to touch and it was like music to my ears as I related very much to its uh, inner message. And that's what like ignited a spark in me and I yeah. began to explore further. And that's when I began to understand, I grew up in Crown Heights, USA, <clears throat> and I began to appreciate and understand that the Rebbe, the Babich Rebbe, Rabbi Menachem Menel who was the seventh Chabad Rebbe, um, was really a truly a revolutionary, mm -hmm. just dressed in a traditional garb, looking to seek and uh, seeking to change the world. And I, uh, was very uh, taken by that because that's what I wanted to be part of, some way of changing the world, you know. Yeah. And, uh, and I became more involved and I began to uh, very, very uh, um, fascinated by these teachings and I got uh, closer and I wanted to really have access to the Rebbe. So I began working with a small group of people who would remember and memorize the talks that he delivered on Shabbos and holiday, which were hours and hours of talks and you had to remember them verbatim and then publish them. So I worked my way up and by 1979, I became one of the main, I became the main writer of these talks. So I had direct access to the Rebbe, I was able to ask him questions and I took full advantage and exploited the situation as best as I could to ask and uh, provoke because I felt I have access to such a spiritual master, let's go for it. And that really, uh, I look back as my whole life, I, I became a rebel with a cause. And the cause was to create a spiritual revolution, to be honest, a revolution where a change of consciousness, higher the sensitivity and the consciousness of human beings of all walks of life, Jew or non-Jew, observant or non-observant. And uh, that, uh, over those years in the 80s, I worked a lot extensively essentially behind closed doors, behind the library walls of research and academia and deeply scholarly uh, writings. But then in the 90s, after the Rebbe had a stroke in 90, 1992 and then passed away in 94, 1994, I went ahead and wrote the book Toward a Meaningful Life, which mm -hmm. distilled these teachings in general, the universal Jewish teachings in a psychological type of personal growth book, which was published by a major publisher, William Morrow. And uh, that, the, that began the next stage in my life. In 1995 and on, I, uh, that book was very successful, reached millions of people, translated into many languages, 13 languages. And that launched my next stage, which was the Meaningful Life Center, an outgrowth of the name of the book, which is what I do now. It's basically bridging the spiritual and the secular and helping people find purpose and meaning in their lives. And I can tell you now in this pandemic, Obviously, all this has taken on a whole new uh, uh, dimension because the people are really vulnerable and receptive and everyone's looking for some deeper yeah. inner stimulation when all your outer lives have, are disrupted, your work, school, 
uh, travel plans, mm-hmm. entertainment, you name it. So this is, uh, so I've been really on overdrive working on delivering all kinds of programs to help people build their, let's call it spiritual, emotional, psychological immunity, mm-hmm. which is equally value, important as is physical health. That's in a nutshell my life. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious. Well, first of all, thank you for all that you're doing and, and sharing it. I'm curious, what kind of questions, being so, you had the fortunate privilege to be so close with the Rebbe, um, what kind of questions would you, would you ask and what was it about his nature that would just a- answer cer- certain ways? Well, a few key things I would point out. The Rebbe was a very sharp mind and thinker. And, you know, when you're dealing with human condition and human problems, is you can look at things on symptomatic level. You look at symptoms. Someone says, I'm depressed, yeah. sad, mm-hmm. I'm not motivated. And then there's looking at things at the root level, yeah. which is the, what's the root of it all. Mm-hmm. And the Rebbe was a very, very keen um, at that. I learned that methodology of cutting through the smoke screens and all the distractions and getting what is the root of an issue. Yeah. People tell you what they tell you is only the effects it has. Yeah. It's not the root. They and tell you the you un- and yeah, and once you understand the root, you can advise and and uh, interventions that can actually help. Like for example, for many people, there's symptom they maybe have addiction. Uh, and I've been doing a few programs on addictions now because quarantine and addiction is unfortunately they they feed each other. Um, so what's the root of addiction is a healthy f- need for Attachment. We all need attachment and love. You don't find it in a healthy way. You start looking in all the unhealthy places or substances or behaviors. So by understanding the root, you can really um, help people find another alternative way to channel that need. Mm-hmm. In healthy, it's like a person who's, let's say, uh, very thirsty mm-hmm. and desperate. They'll drink poison even. And you want toxins and you want them to drink healthy water. So when you understand the root, you can solve many more issues and, and do them in a more permanent and lasting way, not a quick fix. That's just one example. And uh, I can go on and on, different uh, insights. And how it's really methodology. It's how to think about challenges, how to look at an issue, not treat, as I said, the symptoms at the root. Uh, empowerment is a big one, empowering people. Yeah. Not, not to give them the fish, but teach them how to get, catch fish. You, you, know? you bring up an excellent point that, I kind of was go, uh, wanted to ask at least later later on. However, it's a perfect transition, um, and it, and it dives into the whole my my question that I'll then preface with is what the Jewish approach that the Rebbe also emphasized to this transformational process, because and that includes you know what kind of tools and practices are taught to be able to increase this self-awareness, increase this understanding of methodology and connecting with Hashem. Because part of the process of transformation requires becoming aware of these familiar habit patterns of the mind and beginning to quote unquote, break that habit. And as the Rebbe taught, and you, you mentioned in the introduction, you know, lifting the veil of modern life where there's many different veils of illusions we have, for example, and in, in later in the book, you mention a lot about, um, you know, we, we have to define God. And uh, many people have an intellectual understanding of what God is. 
without the emotional kind of experience that you're sharing a little bit, you touched on that the Rebbe not only embodied, but was able to share with you. So therefore the different uh, habits or ways we have of thinking, because sometimes thinking is a habit of itself or a, um, a, a, a habitual pattern of thinking a certain way. Uh, and, that, and we can, we now have like brain scans and things to show that it's embossed neurologically. So I, I'm really curious because, you know, what's, what's becoming more and more popular is meditation because you can get beyond, um, you know, the body and you can get beyond thinking habitual ways to really start to notice these different patterns. Absolutely. Look, um, we are often a uh, product of our uh, of our uh, product or even a victim of circumstances which also turns us into um, habitual creatures we follow habits and patterns either developed in early age in our homes in our schools so social uh, pressure and social norms and once you get into a, uh, a a rut or a pattern or routine it's very hard to break out of it Mm-hmm. So if it's a good pattern, great. But if it's a bad pattern or it's a bad way of thinking, we build deep prejudices and deep stereotypes based on that. And when we know how hard it is to break a habit. So one of the great challenges in any type of growth is to challenge yourself, your mindset. You know, we're prejudiced. We have certain biases. We, we, we think about things in ways that are not necessarily always healthy. But it's very hard to change because that's our, it's like, it's like once you, uh, let's say you're a tennis player and you're just striking the racket the wrong way and become your habit, it's very hard to change that. But with work, you can do that, but you have to recognize that because the first, the first step in all growth is awareness of the problem. Mm-hmm. If you deny there's a problem or you escape from it or you avoid it, you're not going to solve anything. So awareness, key is awareness. And once there's the awareness, you can begin to grow and develop new ways of looking at things. You talk about change of consciousness. Look, the idea of a messianic world, the idea of a world of world, world peace and higher spiritual consciousness is not a fantasy. Every system, whether Jewish or not, every spiritual system, anyone always has dreamt of a better world. Even science dreams of making, creating a better world, eradicating disease, eradicating pandemics like the one we're facing. Uh, the extending life expectancy, uh, building better communications, that we can transcend time and space through technologies and so on. So everybody's looking for a more perfect world. The question is, what means a more perfect world? Is it just simply that you have a faster uh, mobile phone? Or you, we see now in this uh, life that we're doing, that our external systems are not what defines life. We thought we would never be able to exist without going to work or without our summer plans or without the other uh, security blankets. And now we realize that we're human beings, we're vulnerable, fragile human beings. And what really matters are things like love, your relationships, your value system. What do you want to give to the world? What kind of mark you want to make? So this alone is a consciousness changer because it makes people think differently. Because again, the worst possible thing for growth and excellence is comfort zones. Mm-hmm. Everybody wants to be comfortable, but a comfort zone is very nice, but you know what? It doesn't motivate you because then you just stay stuck there. So I see any type of real change in life 
and revolution comes always through some disruption, through some discomfort. You'll see all the greatest inventions in history usually came through pain, through some loss, some trauma, yeah. some uh, challenge. Because, you know, the Talmud puts it this way. The, oil, the, the olive does not produce oil until you press it. Yeah. Pressure works. Pressure turns charcoal into diamonds. Pressure creates new innovative ways how to get out of that challenge. Even war, God forbid war, some of the greatest technologies were created around wartime. So thank God we don't have to fight an outer war. But now we're challenged to look for new innovative ways to um, create inner stimulation because you can't just get it by going to a restaurant and you can't just get it by going to a, to a uh, baseball game or, or whatever it may be. So you have to find it within. And uh, that is a uh, stepping stone to higher consciousness. So when we talk about that, the Rebbe, of course, was major. That was his central theme to bring the world. But you see, not, it's often not interpreted. You mentioned God. Yes, many people have an intellectual idea of God, but many people have a distorted view of God. And their God is not the God that we can embrace. Rabbi Levi Yitzhak Baditchev, it's a favorite line of mine. I use it in Torah meaning for life. He was a great Hasidic master in the 19th century. He said to a self-proclaimed atheist, he said, the God you don't believe in, I also don't believe in. So if God is some type of guy sitting on a throne in heaven with a long white beard, angry, um, punitive, and can't wait to punish us for the sins that we do, or strike us with lightning, I would say I'm an atheist if that's the definition of God. So we have to define what does God mean? However, if you understand God as a far more uh, sublime, you know, a higher reality, the essence of it all, and that connecting to that helps us all become the best we can be, helps you actualize, talked about empowerment, empower you to really become a partner with God, if you wish, um, and become a partner in transforming this world from a materialistic, uh, selfish, survival of the fittest type of world into a selfless, giving world filled with goodness and kindness and uh, nobility and volunteerism and so much of the beauty that we're seeing now, then you're talking about that choice is the difference between life and death, is the difference between living a displaced and a dissonant life to living a redemptive life, a life mm -hmm. of uh, what we would call gola, of redemption, of a messianic type of life. So it's not as crazy as it sounds. It's basically yeah. a vision of a world where there's a total fusion between spirit and matter, between form and function, between the inner and the outer, that our outer lives are reflective of our inner lives, as opposed to the other way around. Many times yeah. I, I mean, ask somebody, you say to somebody, hey, what is, who, who are you? You know, what makes you, what, who are you? And they give you their business card. But the business card is not who you are. Your business card is what you do. And uh, I think, again, this pandemic has caused us to start challenging who you are you outside of your job, outside of all your uh, external mm -hmm. activities. So that's my longer answer to your short question. Yeah. So, so touching on that, is, um, I want to dive into, like you're mentioning with how people have that understanding of uh, God, and I brought it up a little bit. Mm -hmm. even, even I have, let's say, more on like a, you have the intellectual understanding, but the, 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 the fear may still be in the body, in a sense. So what kind of tools or uh, 
tools of transcendence were are are emphasized as practice because even if I'm putting on to fill in every day and doing everything, it's not it not necessarily going to change the way I perceive the world. Right. That's one of the sad realities of our time, that people have become robotic. You know, I call it mechanical Judaism, like mechanical <laughs> behavior. Okay, like you just said, put on tefillin, you stick a mezuzah on the door, you don't work on Shabbat, you eat kosher. But if it's mechanical, all you're really going to be doing is the ritual. But you don't understand the spiritual. So, for example, take, um, take, let's take tefillin. Tefillin yeah. is a mitzvah that every day a boy after bar mitzvah, after 13, will wrap on his arm and on his head. And many just do it. That's what they were taught. It's cultural, whatever. It's a, yeah. That's what you do. But when you think about it, everything in life is driven by balance between mind and heart. It's filling on the head, filling right here against your heart, is a, a type of balance and of mind and heart that you don't just follow your uh, impulses, your emotional impulses, you reflect on things. So tefillin can become a whole uh, meditative experience of personal refinement and personal growth. So a lot of what I do, and of course I learned a lot from the Rebbe and from in general, that's exactly what uh, mm -hmm. the inner dimensions of Torah teach, not just the mechanics, there's mechanics. Yeah. Think of someone uh, playing an instrument and they don't know what, they don't know how to read notes and uh, they say, okay, what am I supposed to do? I see all these notes, it's gibberish. But then someone who knows how to play, doing the same moves, but it's creating magic. Yeah. So the mechanics have to go hand in hand with the soul of it. It's not just knocking your hands on a piano or the strings of a guitar or a violin. It's, there's a soul to it. So I think everything body and soul. The body is the mechanic. So Shabbat, okay. Not supposed to work on Shabbat, but what's the meaning behind it? Meaning is because it's a day of spirit. It's a day of entering in, inward. So we try to shut down as many of our external activities, our work, our machines, our phones, because it's not conducive. You want to sit and meditate, or you want to pray or study, or you want to talk to someone you love. You don't want to be checking your texts. You don't want to be getting on a phone and saying, oh, I have a business meeting. So all these, all these uh, we'll call them traditions, have a soul. You talk about um, exercises, everything. You know, prayer, very often prayer is just lip service, people talking. Mm -hmm. The truth is that prayer is emotional, building emotional intelligence. It's exercising your emotions. That's what it's called. In the Talmud it calls, what is the service of the heart? Prayer. So instead of just lip service, let's just take one prayer in the morning. The traditional prayer to say, Moda'ani. Some of your listeners may be aware. What does it mean? No, we'd say it, I acknowledge, I thank you for returning my soul to me. But if you really think about it, it's a tremendous prayer because before you begin your day, to about mindfulness, you're focusing that, who am I? Are you a body or you're a soul? And you say, thank you for returning my soul means for giving me purpose, spiritual purpose. And I know that the purpose of my day and my life is to use and express my soul. I'm not just there to function, meaning biological fun, just to eat, drink, sleep, make some money, entertain myself. That's an external level. But I'm here to infuse it all with a deeper sense of awareness and soulfulness. And one short prayer said the right way or meditated upon 
can change your whole day, can change your whole life, frankly. So if you go through, in general, the, the Jewish traditions, they're here with us thousands of years. Jews are smart people. They weren't all robotic. I think, unfortunately, over time, things have become mechanical. Like, you know, you, you could, a monkey could also be taught to put on tefillin. I don't mean to be uh, sarcastic, but my point is that there's intention, what we call kavana, yeah. there's soulfulness. You know, you, I find, unfortunately, you feel people are very committed to every ritual in Judaism, but they forget to love other people. They're judgmental, they're condescending. That, to me, is a tremendous dissonance, a tremendous disconnect. You cannot deal a mitzvah and not be a more gentler person, a kinder person. So there's this unfortunate dichotomy where people feel they're very devout in eating matzah or, uh, or making yeah. Yiddish or doing their technical thing, going to a minion. But as soon as you say, one second, why is it not translating into being a kinder person, a more compassionate if you love God, don't you love what God loves, which is his people, his children? So you see, so there's a whole need. If you want to create revolution, you can't just be mechanical. You have to bring the soul into it. That's vital. Unfortunately, statistics show that people who are more, they, they say, the more religious, the less spiritual. The more spiritual, the less religious. What does that tell you? There's a big disconnect. People relate religion to things like tradition, ritual, family, community, law and order, systems, structures. But spirituality is seen as free-spiritedness, energy, music, spreading my wings. And there's a big disconnect. And then the negative, stereo, uh, uh, the negative elements of religion go into fear, anger, yeah. punishment, punitiveness, judgmentalism, condescension. When the truth is, it goes together. It's a fusion body. And so a body without a soul you know what that is? It's called a corpse. It's dead. And a soul without a body is not grounded. So everything needs a, 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 a fusion of the two. And I think, I go back to this pandemic, this is an opportunity to achieve exactly that because the outer mechanics have been disrupted. For very religious Jews, they can't go to shul. And there's no minion. And they can't say Kaddish in the regular way. They can't, I mean, it's sad in many ways. But on the other hand, it's disrupting a structure to maybe discover that which is beyond the structure. In, in order to heal, the, the pus has to rise, in a sense, to come out of the wound. Yeah, and sometimes you're, exactly. And that's why sometimes when people are in a very uncomfortable place, painful place, it's the first step toward healing. In Hasidic thought, there's a concept called yesh, ayin yesh. What does that mean? Okay. And for any paradigm shift to happen, you start with a certain paradigm. You need a disruption because you need to shed a layer of skin to assume a new layer of skin. We talked about growth. Mm -hmm. If you have your old prejudices and your old way of thinking, you're never going to grow because whatever you do is going to be an extension of your past. So like I, I always like to put it this way, um, that if you think what you thought and you say what you said and you do what you did, you know what you're going to have. What you had. You want change, you need to action reaction you need to do something different if you want different results very nice yeah <laughs> i see i silenced you it's silence is a language of its own i agree beautiful beautiful uh, 
there's so much I would like to go on from there, but I'd really like to um, dive into a little bit more about the Rebbe. And it's a question I had a few weeks ago, and I think I, I asked the rabbi here, but I'd like to touch a little bit more to help clarify other people's understandings because they may be in, intimidated um, with the Jewish approach with a Rebbe. We, we write to him, we have photos with him around the home, etc. And how is it really different from other religions? Because the practice looks similar. And even when somebody writes to their um, person they look up to, enlightened man or woman, they may even have revealed blessings or fortunes come to them. But the way it is explained from what I've heard, which by the way is very important and can lead to different experiences, seems, very, seems different. Can you, can you dive into the approach with a Rebbe and more, more than just, you know, a Rebbe is like a coach, a teacher, really dive more into it. Being that we're all subjective human beings, which means we have our prejudices and biases, our blind spots, and, uh, and our self-interest, frankly, our self-interest. So it's vital to have some objective perspective on life. Mm -hmm. so you, you mentioned the word mentor, yes, a good word. But in truth, um, 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 the way we go be, beyond ourselves is getting an objective perspective. What a Rebbe does that's deeper is that he has a like a spiritual vision of things. As part of a spiritual vision, it, it's like looking at a bird's eye view of reality. Due to his selflessness and due to his transparency and lack of ego, which he's worked on, can give you like a very transparent picture of reality. So it's more than just a subject, an objective mentor. It's someone that actually has a different spiritual perspective. Most of us are material human beings, and from time to time we have spiritual or transcendent perspectives. Imagine someone who's 24-7 saturated with a spiritual view of things. So when you speak to someone like that, or you, you get counsel and advice, you're getting a whole different reality. You're getting a, a vision of uh, that's coming from a different place. Like, so it's the ultimate spiritual uh, master, so to speak. And this is a result of his own selflessness. Not because he's so great, because he's so powerful. It's because, on the contrary, he's no agenda of his own. So without that agenda, it allows us to be able to rise and see things in a far more powerful way. You know, most people we meet in life have an agenda. They have an agenda. It may not be a bad agenda, but still an agenda. That's what I, how I would define it in a nutshell. Nice. Yeah. To, to begin having a, now diving a little bit more into the, your book and how the book is structured, to be able to begin living a, a meaningful life, we really have to define 
what meaning what it meaningful means because it also may be different for uh, different individuals just like how we may have different activities that bring us a sense of happiness could you could you walk through um and define what it really means to live kind of meaningfully it, through the different sections of your book you have you know man self and and with god sure a social a social is a social section social yeah um, yeah. Man, not man himself, man, social, and, and God. Right, right. Yeah. I would say that uh, I would use it a business example because it'll make it more credible. You know, every business cannot function without a mission statement. A mission statement. And a mission statement, by definition, even for a capitalist, profit driven company, always is about a cause that's greater than any individual. I'll just use an example. Google's mission statement is to organize all the information of the world and make it readily accessible. So there are 120,000 employees and every innovation that they make, which makes them billions of dollars, is not driven by the line, let's make money. You know, it's serving a need that people have. And since 90% or whatever the amount of their searches that we make yield results, we continue to go back to Google. If the searches went down to 50%, Google would go out of business, or at least uh, definitely lose. So let's apply that to our personal lives. Meaning means it's not about you. It's not about me making money, power, influence, control. It's about how are you going to serve a greater cause, a higher cause that's your, than yourself. And that in turn enriches you because you have now become a, an ambassador, a servant, a type of messenger, an agent of some contribution. So the question you have to ask yourself, how am I using my skills and my tools and my resources toward a higher end? That is meaning. It's a sense of mission. Yeah. It's a sense of urgency. Look, you're using technology to create this uh, webcast, podcast, whatever you call it. Um, to, to try to spread a message of, of hope, a message of direction, guidance, a message of truth. So you're using your skills, your time, your resources. You are doing something meaningful. You could have said, instead of us sitting right here, you could have spent the next hour or ever playing video games or just chatting on a, ta on, on yeah. chat, you know, texting around for nonsense. You know, I'm not, I'm not here to criticize, but that would be called not meaningful. Yeah, I mean, it's fine. It may be meaningful to you for the moment, but to say you're making an impact on people's lives. So it really comes down to that. It comes down to are you here to serve yourself or are you here to serve something greater? As soon as it's greater, that's called meaning. That's meaningfulness. I each try to provide tools for people to look at their lives yeah. in, a, in a new, new eyes. And whatever it may be, you can be in medicine, you can be in technology, you can be whatever you can be. You are here on a mission, you're here on a calling to spiritualize the corner of your world and make it a little more beautiful, a little more sublime, a little more soulful. Yeah. That's how I would define it, yeah. Well, also, it brings up a great point that we were mentioning a little earlier on the kind of process of transformation and that, you know, like you were saying with the all of you know, it has to go through a pressure and it says so do you have any what um how would you recommend somebody like usually it takes some kind of 
external event to to lead somebody to want to transform to, to make that transformation do do when as as another person as like a, a rebbe in in different talks that i have seen on uh, the gem foundation and everything he is a very nice and peaceful uh nature he doesn't try and make somebody do something he in a sense has he kind of trusts that everyone is in their in their right timing but how do you how do you or how can we inspire somebody to change purely out of joy and and, and not wanting to have to have that kind of um, suffering in a sense? I don't want to, maybe not suffering, but you know, turbulence. Well, unfortunately, or fortunately, most people make a shift in their lives when there's something uncomfortable, um, and often it's painful and grief, a loss, trauma some form of suffering and pain. We all prefer not that. We all prefer to be able to create change, but it's not easy to do. Because when you're comfortable and you're successful and you're prosperous and nothing is, you know, you're, you, if I came to you and you were that way, you'd say, I'm fine. What do you want from me? Yeah. I'm fine. Because there's a human tendency to gravitate toward comfort. We like it. I'm, I'm fine. You'll see that usually what motivates people is some discomfort. The question is the level of discomfort. It could be just plain, you wake up one morning and say, I'm not doing anything with my life. And I feel frustrated and I feel empty. Or it could be competition. You have a friend or someone else is doing something. Hey, and like certain jealousy, healthy form of uh, wanting to show demonstrate or it could be pain look look this disruption of this pandemic has is causing everybody to think rethink their lives but there's been losses there have been deaths there have been this grief we wish it wasn't that way so i don't have a magic trick to tell you here's how you can do it without pain i do think that some of us are wired to be more motivated to do to make change but many are not many are not many will not change something unless they're forced to so I just want to wish upon everyone a blessing and prayer that it shouldn't come with tremendous pain. It should come with a minimal amount of, but discomfort is impossible to avoid. Look, you think that a, a, a child can grow into an adult without the discomfort and of an awkwardness of adolescence? It doesn't work that way. You can, you, you know, they say when a man with money meets a man with experience, the man with experience ends up with the money and the man with the money ends up with the experience. You know, what that means is, you, you need to make mistakes to be able to grow into something greater. And mistakes yeah. are always somewhat painful. Now, we pray and hope that the mistakes, the setbacks, the pain should be minimal. But sometimes it's not. Unfortunately, I, meet, I, you know, I deal with many people, and sometimes there's real tragedy. Loss of family members, premature deaths. You know, even this, even this COVID-19 has taken lives of people I know, family, friends, people I've grew up with. Very painful to see that suddenly like this for this epidemic just came sweeping through. But then there's the other side. There's the sad side. Then there's, okay, so what do we learn from this? And how do we grow? And how do we become better people? Because I'll tell you, the worst possible thing is in addition to all that loss and grief, we, we also become miserable and depressed. And that's a second, uh, secondary damage done by this pandemic, the demoralization of the human spirit. That we cannot allow. We can't control events around us, but we can absolutely control how our attitudes 
and how we're going to treat it. Mm-hmm. And that's why we're here. We're talking about that. Because the human spirit is very powerful. But I don't have a quick fix. <laughs> Press this button and you'll never have pain in your Perhaps life. Perhaps that's what the time of Mashiach is like. <laughs> yeah, but Mashiach came after years, thousands of years of a lot of oppression and pain. Came that's with heavy right. prices. You know, we lost a lot of people. Terrible, terrible, the Holocaust. I mean, it, it yeah. came a heavy price. But you know what? That's what life is about. Life is never meant to be easy. Life is so, a challenge. Ravi, br- bring up an excellent point. And with these different um, unfortunate experiences, whether a loss of a, a loved one or whatever the traumatic experience may be, a big part of it is your perception of the approach. How do you define the experience? So we were also talking about transformation. You're getting beyond the self. So a lot in, in response to many situations like that, even if somebody has a, a good practice of, uh, you know, prayer or meditation, the, the response may be, how could this happen to me? You know, oh, I've, I am very, I am, I am in pain. But it's how, how do you practice or, or teach your different clients or with uh, different videos that you share with different people, the ability to um, take the, ex- to the whatever experience you have, whatever sensations, and look at them objectively so that it's not I'm sad, it's I feel sad right now. Because if I'm sad, that if I, if I identify with that, even for a little bit part of the day, then I'm, I'm, I'm sad, then it might you know, lead me not to, to do any action. But if I feel sad, oh, okay, feelings come and go, thoughts arise and pass away. So I'm really interested in how do you help? That's a practice that takes time, but that's really getting beyond the self. How do you, and how did the Rebbe really teach that to be able to get beyond that? To be able to look at the experiences, sensations in a more objective, as objective as possible way. There's a famous expression, trach gut vetzayin gut. Think good and it will be good. And many people think it's some type of, you know, nice bumper sticker cliche. It actually isn't. You know, there's a thing called positive psychology, mm-hmm. which is like became popular last years. What, it's all based on that. It's based on the principle that whenever anything happens to you, you could either focus on the negative and usually be brought down and demoralized, be disoriented. Or you can focus on the positive, which is saying, I don't know why this happened, but how am I going to dig deeper? And I'm not going to allow myself to sink. And we have evidence of real effect, physical and physiological and psychosomatic effect on the human being when you think positively. I'll just give you an example. If, God forbid, somebody's in a hospital and nobody should be in a hospital and they have visitors and they have guests and they have cards and balloons and people calling them, and then contrast that with another person lying across the room, no one visiting, Mm. no one caring, no one calling. I don't think you need to be a rocket scientist to know that the first person has much more chances of surviving. Why? Because he has friends. There's a support which builds willpower. You want to fight, which in turn affects your immune system. Ask any doctor. It does. We, We are not just physical machines. We need spirit. We need hope. We need belief. So the second person, unfortunately, is going to give up. 
in many cases, say, you know, no one, I'm all alone, no one cares. And that mindset debilitates and definitely that, uh, amplifies the, the illness. So this isn't good, this think good and be good is not just some line. Yeah. It's about accessing the positive energy, accessing your inner immune system, your willpower, your, your inner resources and strengths to fight. It's like adrenaline. Adrenaline makes you stronger, makes you more motivated. So that's the general attitude. Second, it includes several things. First of all, to think that way. Second of all, have friends. Because sometimes the fact is we're all going to be down. And it's very hard to pull yourself out. They say a person who's tied up in ropes can't free themselves. You have to throw them a lifeline. So having friends, having support systems, people we can lean on. And third thing, finally, I would suggest is study about your soul. Get to know your soul. We know our body so well, and when we need our soul, we don't know much about it. It's like you need to get to know, just like you need to exercise your body to get your muscles going, you need to exercise your soul, which is getting to know yourself, getting to know you have more strengths than you think you have. You have more potential than you think you have. Mm-hmm. And with that type of attitude, listen, God still runs the show. I'm not going to say there's no, again, magic, but, but you, you have a much more fighting chance. And I'd add one more thing, you know, since I'm on a roll, a fourth thing, serve others. I mentioned before, serve. Don't allow yourself to just sit around and say, why did this happen? And what's going to be? And watch the news and hear all the negative forecasts. Do, do things. Get, get on the phone. Get online. Call someone. Volunteer to help. When you show love, you get love. That's how it works. When you show goodness to others, it brings goodness into your life. It's a fact. You know, it's a fact. It strengthens you. It's so easy now to people just get, lay, lay, lay in bed, in quarantine, nowhere to go, no job, maybe I'll be laid off tomorrow. Those, those thoughts do not make for a healthier person. Yeah, I, li- I like the, diff- the added parts you added with that because think, thinking good is, is one part of it, but you also, there are many people I feel, and even myself at one point, where I would think positively but the the na- the state of being was still in a limited kind of way, right? So it, um, it's no, no, you need to. Have... You really have to. You really have to, you know, gradually move into a state of being where you're not just thinking positively, but you're you are positive. Absolutely. Look, um. It's like a war. You have to fight on all fronts. You can't just do one thing. You got to attack it from every possible way. Yeah. Well, well, Rabbi, I really appreciate all all the words of wisdom and questions. My questions, you've you've been so grateful to answer. I'd love to, for the last few minutes, since we're in the counting of the Omer, could you share a few insights about the counting of the Omer? What does it mean to? What's so special or what's so significant about? counting and and also what's so significant about the omer the, as a wave offering as uh, Hashem commanded through Moshe. Right. So you may be familiar, I did a book called The Spiritual Guide to Counting the Omer. If you're not, I'm telling you, I'll tell your audience. <laughs> it's, oh, you mentioned the Omer app, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So essentially, have, yeah, great. I've been, uh, well, the past three years, so I had a, a, an experience <laughs> 
the, a concussion that it happened around the Omer time about two, two years ago, two, three years ago. And I would begin journaling on the Omer, the different counting of the days and, and attribute it kind of as my own personal exile from Egypt. And then I have kept a journal from each, like looking at what I was writing back then to, to now. And so. How you, you're good. You got. You, oh, absolutely. I'm so grateful for it. Beautiful to hear. Well, the Omer counting, like, like we spoke earlier, there's the mechanical side to it, and there's the emotional and spiritual side. Mm -hmm. The mechanical side is after the bringing of the, of the second day of Passover, the, the Torah commands that Jews should begin counting till Shavuos, 49 days, mm -hmm. seven times seven, seven weeks, seven days each week, until they come to the 50th day when they will receive the Torah and celebrate Shavuos. Some say it's part of the anticipation the Jews had when they left Egypt, counting down to Sinai. But there's always a deeper spiritual element to it. Mm -hmm. Counting is more than just counting. The word Hebrew counting means to count, but it also means to tell a story. Sipur mm -hmm. is a story. It also comes from the word sapphire, a beautiful stone. So it's like transparency. So counting is about being deliberate by being specific. Today's a day. Each day has its corresponding emotional attribute, which you'll find in the prayer book. Chesed of chesed, love of love, discipline of chesed. That's why I wrote the book. You can find it easily online. You'll find the free Omer app, my Omer app. Every day has its thought, its meditation and exercise. And what is it? It's looking deeper into your, what's the story of your soul? You're counting to tell the story and illuminating that particular dimension of your emotional psyche. To just use an example, some people are very giving. They're good. They love well. That's chesed. But they don't know when to stop loving. They could spoil someone. They can overwhelm them with their love. So we have gvura of chesed, which says, one second, you need to discipline your love. Yeah. It has to have discretion. There are people the opposite. They have a lot of gvura. They're very disciplined and very severe, but they're not showing enough love and compassion. Within parents, others can, you know, parents can suffer from this. So all of us have seven general emotions. They are love, discipline, compassion, endurance, yielding or humility, bonding, and dignity. This, can, this includes all human emotions. Each one of them breaks into another seven. The love of love, the discipline of love, the compassion of love, the endurance of love, the humility of love, the bonding of love, and the dignity of love. So when you go through the 49 days, you're actually going through a very powerful, rigorous evaluation, soul-searching of who are you. And yeah. defining here are your strengths that you can improve on that you can build further. Here are your weaknesses that you can improve on or tame or readjust. It's just like a doctor gives you a diagnosis or an x-ray of your body, the Omer gives you an x-ray and diagnosis of your soul. That's the bottom line, yeah. I, I, I love it. And um, I love how you also have different journal entries in there because it's... it's it's personal, yeah. It, no, exactly. How do I take, you know, today where you're so chibihod, and the different meditations, the different journals, how do I bring it and even begin to think about, you know, uh, my foundation, 
the foundation of humility. So it, it's one, I, I, I made a video on how I began this kind of journaling. And it's also really cool uh, to look back and see, you know, which week, which emotional attribute did I perhaps have the most, you know, challenges or unpleasant situations. Exactly. Exactly. You know, um, exactly. It's all about introspection where a person sees themselves in a deeper way and is able to refine and look at themselves. Hod of Yesod, right? Today, Yesod of Hod. Yesod of Hod, I'm sorry, yes, because yesterday was like Bomber, right? You know? Now, I'm looking right now. You have it in front of you, the app? I have it on my phone, but it's but I'm also currently using the phone to record, so I, I can't get out of the... No, no, that's fine. That's fine. I'm, I'm, I'm looking myself here. Okay. Um, so here's, here's what I've written about it. Humility should not be a lonely experience. It ought to result in deep bonding and commitment. There is no stronger bond than one that comes out of humility. Does my humility separate me from others or brings us close? Does my, does my humility produce results, long-term results? Does it create an everlasting foundation upon which I and others can rely and build? So Yisod of Hod is ensuring that our humility is powerful and foundational. Like use your humility to build something lasting. So without Yisod, humility can sometimes be weak. You know, that you yield and you um, uh, allow others to do what they have to do, but it's not really building something in your life. That would be the way I would uh, interpret it quickly. So every one of them is beautiful. In the way it, uh, yeah. Definitely, and over time you see how, how it relates in your own life. Like I was sharing earlier, um, you know, the, the ability to, to look at experiences in your life in an objective manner. When I, was first, when I first started it, first started you know, journaling, just how I'd been feeling, like based on the, that corresponding day, you know, a lot of what I'd written was subjective. Me, my, you know, why did this happen kind of to me? But then now it's like I, when I write now, it's, it's a lot more objective. It's, it's this, this was a wonderful experience or it led to this. I can see things in a greater perspective. So one, again, thank you for, for creating an, a, an app that I, I'm sure is highly downloaded in the experience we're all going through now. Uh, to, to close, to conclude, uh, I'd really like to acknowledge and appreciate you for all the work that you've done in, in sharing the Rebbe's message and being able to, to take his message, which he, accurate, he ac uh, accurately explained to the world, and you have brought it even more to, to young adults like myself uh, with, with your book and with the app and all the work you're doing with Meaningful Life Center. So, Rabbi, thank you. And thank you very much for, for coming on this show. I really, really appreciate it. It's an honor to speak with uh, individuals and leaders like yourself. Well, Solomon, thank you for having me and thank you for doing this. And may it get out there. And, uh, and uh, we're here, as I said, agents of change that will bring a higher spiritual consciousness. Mm -hmm. Thank you for your good questions, very engaging, and God bless you.
As we did in the previous episode, here are a few practical applications. Number one, the best way to really learn more about this subject or any subject would be to go and read the book, Toward a Meaningful Life. I really like the episode with Rabbi Jacobson. However, the hour-long conversation we had doesn't come close to reading the full book. Number two, ask yourself the questions Rabbi suggested in this episode and journal down your answers and return to them often. I, I have a few here. Who are you outside of your external duties? How am I using my skills, my tools, my resources toward a higher end? And a third, what does living meaningfully mean to you? What would it look like, feel like, etc. to live meaningfully? If you don't know right now, that's okay. Go throughout the day and days asking yourself this question and be open to different answers that come. Number three, study about and exercise your soul muscle. Hmm, this one is a longer-term investment. I highly recommend slowly introducing a spiritual practice of meditation, prayer, mindfulness. Review the days and question if the things you are doing feel like mechanical activities or if your soul is in it. Look at the different relationships, circumstances, and experiences in your life and question what thoughts and feelings you have around that thing, that person, or that experience, everything known in your life. If there's something you have been doing for a while, yet there's a lot of uncertainty, pain, or unease around it, it may be time to ask yourself why, because that thing may not be the problem, but the approach you have with it. I hope these practical applications help you really personalize the information, and if you find other ways, please share them with me. Thank you very much for tuning in and listening. I hope this episode brought you some really great value. If you enjoyed any of these episodes or would like to hear more, please leave me a review on Apple or Anchor Podcast. I'm always looking out for topics to learn and talk about, gifts to share, and value to bring to us all. For more updates, please check out solomonezra.wixsite.com slash solomonezra. That's S-O-L-O-M-O-N-E-Z-R-A. That's where you can also sign up for newsletters, read about blogs, and hear my different podcasts. Take care.